A 26-year-old woman with dark, wavy, shoulder-length hair looked out to the busy pier, where a large passenger ship was anchored, its black hull and red smokestack gleaming in the early May sunshine. All around her, more than a thousand women and children mingled with American servicemen, hugging, kissing, and crying as they said their goodbyes near Manila's Pier 7. The woman's husband, standing in front of her, saw the anxious look on her oval-shaped face, her eyes wide and dark eyebrows lifted in concern. The captivating smile that made her cheeks into apples was nowhere to be seen. It'll be all right, hun. It's just a precaution. We probably won't be seeing action here for a long while. Grace Britt looked up into her husband's eyes. Almost a head taller than her, Chet stood at six feet three inches, with his hair cut short and parted on the left, neat and trim like any good army officer. He had a square face and an almost mischievous glint in his eyes when he smiled. But, just like his wife, Chet Britt wasn't smiling, and Grace wondered if he truly believed all he said. I just don't want to leave you. And what about the baby? You won't be with me when he comes, Grace said. Chet sighed as he watched his wife touch her belly, at that moment barely showing that she was five months along. Missing their child's birth was the hardest part. Hey, he said, gently taking his wife by the shoulders and bending down to look in her eyes. My orders were for 18 months in the Philippines. We've been here six, so I'll be home in a year. That's not so long. Plus, you'll have your mother and my mother and your sisters. Everything will be okay. We can do all things through God. Grace smiled a little as he quoted the Bible. He was right. God would strengthen her. Just then, the ship's horn blew. Grace threw herself into Chet's arms, the tears coming fast. Every time I look at the big Philippine moon, I'll think of you, back home and under that same moon, he whispered. The horn blew again, and they separated. Reluctantly, Grace joined the throng of women and children, heading down the pier to the large transport ship. She kept her eyes on Chet as she slowly climbed the gangway, until the crowds on the ship and the crowd near the dock made it impossible for her to see him any longer. All she could do now is hope that she would one day see him again. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather, Al Masalm, was one of the POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you appreciate this podcast and believe it's important for people to know this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing it with a friend. Word of mouth is the main way people find new podcasts, and by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. The last several episodes have been intense as we focused on experiences of the Bataan Death March and Camp O'Donnell. Today's episode, however, shifts gears a bit, focusing on how the bonds of love and faith can pull someone through the most awful of circumstances. I've relied on two main sources to tell this episode. A 2021 biography of Grace and Chet Britt, written by their son David Britt, titled Relentless Hope, A True Story of War and Survival. I was also able to speak with Dave Britt, so we'll get a beautiful perspective of Chet and Grace's experiences through the eyes of their son. David himself is a Vietnam-era veteran and retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He and researcher John Dureski spent two years researching and writing about Chet's wartime experiences. Their research efforts even uncovered previously unknown details and video of the Oroko Maru hellship disaster. One last note, so far in the episodes of Left Behind, we've talked about the war on Bataan Peninsula, as well as hinted at the battle on Corregidor Island. Those were the two main U.S. strongholds on and near Luzon which is the Philippines' largest island. 
However, several smaller island forts near Manila played parts in the early Philippine battle. And we'll discuss one of those island forts today, Fort Wint on Grand Island. Let's jump in. Chester K. Britt, or Chet to his family and friends, was born June 13, 1915 in La Crosse, Wisconsin, on the banks of the Northern Mississippi River, to Archibald and Hazel Britt. Archibald was a railroad engineer, and Hazel stayed at home with Chet and his six younger siblings. The family remained in La Crosse for all of Chet's growing up years. In June 1919, mere days after his fourth birthday, Chet was picking clovers with a couple of friends when he came across a downed telephone wire. A neighbor nearby heard screams and cries and came running to find young Chet holding onto the wire. Normally, telephone wires do not carry electricity, but this one had fallen over a streetcar wire, which did carry electricity, that passed through the telephone wire and into Chet. He suffered severe burns on his hands and legs, but despite the near electrocution, the doctor said he would survive, and he did. As a young teenager, Chet joined a local Boy Scout troop and became its head bugler. He also enjoyed building gliders, both models and human-sized. At one point, the young adventurer decided to build a glider that he could ride in. Once the craft was completed, Chet and his brothers hauled the glider to the top of Grandad Bluff, which overlooks the cross. He planned to launch the craft and glide down to the country club fairway below him. That is, if the contraption actually caught wind and glided, and didn't crash down the cliffside onto the jagged rocks below. Chet's father, however, hearing of the planned expedition, drove to the bluff's top and stopped the intended flight. While his flight hopes were perhaps dashed, Chet's sailing hopes were still afloat when he joined the Boy Scout Sea Scouts and learned to sail a whaling ship on a nearby lake. But the young man's high school days weren't marked only by adventures. No, his younger sister had a friend named Grace Renice, who thought Chet was handsome. Ever the obliging friend, Chet's sister introduced Grace to Chet, and the two became close friends. Grace Rubina Renice was just a few months younger than Chet, although they were a great apart in school. She was born in September 1915 in Ferryville, Wisconsin, just 36 miles or 58 kilometers down the mighty Mississippi from La Crosse. She was the fourth child born to Martin and Hilma Renice, both of whom were Wisconsin natives with Norwegian immigrant parents. Martin worked as a store clerk and around the time of Grace's birth ran for Ferryville Sheriff. But by early summer 1917, when Grace was not yet two, he had gone west to Wyoming to start a ranch while his family remained behind in Wisconsin. While working the ranch in July 1917, Martin wounded his finger, which became infected and he died two days later. He left behind three children, ages 10 and younger, and his 38-year-old wife, who was around seven months pregnant with their fifth child. By the time Grace was 14 years old, she and her family had moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin, Chet's hometown. Her mother, Hilma, ran a small boarding house, and Grace's elder sister and brother worked at an auto parts factory and for the railroad, respectively. Since the Renices were a single-parent family in the early days of the Great Depression, I wonder if Grace's two older siblings had to leave school early to support the family. Her eldest sister completed only two years of high school, and her brother completed three. Grace, however, was able to remain at Logan High School all four years, which is where she met Chet Britt. They were close friends and remained so even after he graduated high school in early 1933. Grace graduated a year later. After high school graduation, Chet attended La Crosse State Teachers College, which today is the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. A faith-filled young man, he also taught Sunday school during these post-high school years. A natural mathematician, Chet excelled in college and was eventually nominated for and accepted into the United States Military Academy in New York, commonly known as West Point. The adventurous young aviator and sailor now had his sights set on the Army. 
21-year-old Chet started his club year in September 1936. He graduated on June 11, 1940 with the rank of second lieutenant. Throughout those four years at West Point, Chet and Grace constantly wrote to each other. The two married the day after his graduation in the West Point Cadet Chapel. They enjoyed a month furlough before Chet reported for his first active duty assignment, an intensive two-week Coast Artillery Corps officer training in Virginia, and then he was assigned to Corregidor Island in the Philippines. On September 12, 1940, three months after Chet's graduation and the couple's marriage, Chet and Grace set sail from New York City. They were young, in love, and bound for a brand new adventure. After six weeks at sea, the newlywed couple arrived in Manila on November 1st and were immediately shuttled to Corregidor, the island fortress that guarded the entrance to Manila Bay. The island was home to a U.S. Army fort, which became a vital artillery protection point for Manila and the bay. Thus, the Coast Artillery, which Lieutenant Chester Britt was part of, was the focus of the Army forces on the island. The young couple set up their home in a large duplex in the officer's area of the island, and it wasn't all that bad of a setup. The officer's area boasted a movie theater and a golf course, and when Chet was off duty, he and Grace enjoyed softball, archery, and strolls around the lush landscape. The couple had even had their car shipped over. But their time on Corregidor was short. The next month, so December 1940, the Army realized that now First Lieutenant Britt's mathematics skills were needed elsewhere, and he was transferred to the 92nd Coast Artillery and sent to yet another island. The 92nd was a Philippine Scouts unit, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Philippine Scouts were highly trained U.S. Army units, made up mainly of enlisted and non-com Filipino servicemen with American officers. Lieutenant Britt taught math to Filipino servicemen who were undergoing artillery training. Chet's assignment was to Fort Wint on Grand Island in Subic Bay. Subic Bay sits on Bataan Peninsula's northwestern side. Grand Island is situated at the bay's mouth. Not five miles northeast of Grand Island and situated on Bataan Peninsula's very northwestern edge was a Longapo Navy Yard. Thus, Grand Island's Fort Wint offered a protection for Subic Bay and Alongapo. And despite being only about 35 miles or 56 kilometers away from Corregidor Island, it was nearly a world apart. Where Corregidor was busy and bustling with all sorts of accommodations, Grand Island was quiet. The island is roughly square in shape and is less than half a mile wide in either direction. Compared with the hills and cliffs of Bataan and Corregidor, Grand Island is fairly flat, with the northeastern side coming down to meet the water. The Brits made their home in the small grouping of officers' quarters on the island's north shore. They enjoyed breathtaking views of the Bataan Peninsula. Grace furnished the home, which was close enough to their neighbors to see through their screens, with the wicker furniture the couple had just purchased on Corregidor. Life on the island was fairly laid back, and Grace and Chet became friends with other newly married officers and their wives. When the husbands were off duty, they enjoyed sailing in Subic Bay, playing cards, and doing other activities. And in spring 1941, Chet and Grace learned that they were expecting their first child. But, as was the case for Chet and Grace's first year of marriage, change was imminent, and the quiet life on Grand Island wouldn't last. The Army decided to evacuate all servicemen's wives and children back to the United States. Military tensions with Japan were increasing, as was the U.S. military's presence in the Philippines. Hostilities with Japan now seemed like a likely event, and, for their own safety, family members were evacuated home. Grace packed their belongings, which included that wicker furniture, which were shipped home to La Crosse, Wisconsin. Grace bid her husband of 11 months goodbye and sailed from Manila on May 5, 1941. The six-week voyage took her across the Pacific, through the Panama Canal, and up the Atlantic seaboard to New York City. She was alone, five months pregnant, sailing away from her husband who remained behind on an island 
that could be a war zone in the not too distant future. With the women and children's departure, the relaxed atmosphere of Grand Island changed as Lieutenant Britt and the 92nd Coast Artillery began preparing for war. He found that his Filipino students had poor math skills, which isn't surprising since many of them were raised on poor rural farms and hadn't had the same opportunities for education as did students in the United States. Chet struggled to teach them the algorithms and trigonometry that would be so vital in their artillery calculations. Beyond the classroom, the men at Fort Wint dug foxholes, prepared fighting positions, and moved weapons, food, and medicine to bunkers. Chet himself took on several roles at Fort Wint. In that 2021 biography of his father, Dave Britt wrote, He was given several primary and additional duties, Battalion Adjutant, Headquarters Company Commander, Battery D Commander, and Battalion Communications and Transportation Officer. One paycheck, but many responsibilities and duties. In October 1941, word arrived that Grace had given birth to a healthy son, Chester K. Britt Jr. Delighted by the news that he was a father, he also worried about a coming war and whether he'd survive to see his child or his wife. And then... Barely two months later, war finally arrived. Despite its location at the entrance to Subic Bay and being the bay's only real protection, aside from the mines that dotted the waters into the bay, Grand Island's Fort Wint played practically no part in protecting the Philippines. It was primarily a training facility and their armament was woefully small eight large artillery guns, and hardly enough ammo to last the first few days of war. Once that was gone, they'd have no hope for resupply. Dave Britt wrote, The bombardment of Fort Wint was reported to have been fierce, but intermittent, with the Japanese attacking infrastructure, specifically electricity and water. The after-action report for forces on Grande Island reported seeing a Japanese landing craft with 30 soldiers attempting to land in early December. But Lieutenant Britt and his fellow artillerymen had other plans. They destroyed the approaching boat and watched it sink into the bay. Not a single Japanese soldier set foot on the island. On December 24, 1941, Fort Wint was ordered evacuated, which included moving their large mobile artillery guns to Bataan and Corregidor. Lieutenant Chet Britt was put in charge of the evacuation. The smaller anti-aircraft guns were sent to a Corregidor, but the four heavy 155mm artillery guns were loaded onto barges for the two-mile trip to Olongapo Navy Yard. Once there, Britt and his men used tractors to pull the guns into Bataan, where they would support Filipino infantry. But moving the large guns into position on Bataan was no easy task. Bataan itself is a hilly, jungle-covered area, and mountains divide the peninsula lengthwise down the middle. The coastal roads were primitive, especially on the western side where Britt and his men had landed the guns, and chances were high that on the roads closest to Olongapo, they could encounter enemy soldiers and fire. Dave Britt wrote, The heavier 155mm artillery guns were moved nearly 80 miles in a 24-hour period, across the water, then up increasingly steep grades to their firing positions. Under constant pressure to move guns, men, and materials, Lieutenant Britt's plan needed to remain flexible to respond to any Japanese attack, not knowing when or where it would occur. For his actions that night, Lieutenant Britt later received the Legion of Merit, the third highest military honor at the time. As it turns out though, evacuating Fort Wint was a tactical mistake because it gave Japanese forces early uncontested access to Northwestern Bataan Historians agree that the small island fort likely couldn't have been defended for very long, but the delay in Japanese occupation could have made important differences for fighting on Bataan. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let's go back a bit. First off, no one seems to know exactly who ordered the island's evacuation. One writer even called the order, quote, one of the minor mysteries of the war, close quote. Odds are that the island was ordered evacuated by the commander of the U.S. Army's Northern Luzon forces. 
I'm not going to go into all the nitty gritty, but during the withdrawal to Bataan, the US Army was divided into various forces. Apparently, the commander's area of authority wasn't clear. He had received orders for all US and Filipino forces to withdraw south of the main battle position on Bataan. In his mind, that meant even the units on Grand Island, which was technically north of the battle position on Bataan. When he learned that the units on the island were not falling back, he ordered the island evacuated immediately. This order, however, was in direct opposition to MacArthur's main plan, such as it was. And, in fact, the first notion MacArthur's people had that Grand Island had been evacuated was when members of the Fort Wint garrison arrived on Corregidor. Thus, the evacuation on Fort Wint allowed Japan unfettered early access to Subic Bay and the Ilongapo Navy Yard, which became a vital supply line for the Japanese forces on Bataan. Historian Lewis Morton wrote, quote, While the ongoing support or retention of Fort Wint was probably impossible, its evacuation without a struggle gave the Japanese an important objective at no cost. An American garrison on Grand Island, even if it was ultimately lost, might well have paid substantial dividends and certainly would have given the Japanese many uncomfortable moments. From Fort Wint, the Americans with their large guns could have disputed Japanese control of the bay and of Olongapo, which later became an important enemy supply base and would have constituted a threat to the flank of any Japanese. The evacuation is yet another example of the chaos that continually plagued servicemen like Lieutenant Chet Britt as they fought to hold Bataan. The day after moving the guns to Bataan, Lieutenant Britt was assigned to the 301st Field Artillery and became a battery commander, overseeing those 155mm guns. Over the next three months, he'd oversee their southward movement until April 9th when the guns were destroyed and Chet and his comrades surrendered to Japanese forces at Maravellis on the southern tip of the peninsula. And with that, Lieutenant Chester Britt was now a prisoner of war. But back home in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Grace Britt didn't know her husband's fate. She certainly would have heard the news of Baton's fall, but beyond that, she had no word about Chet. She would not have known during those spring months of 1942, as she cared for her now seven-month-old son, that her husband endured the horrendous war crime that would come to be known as the Baton Death March, or that he, with the help of a close group of friends, survived six weeks at the sick-infested Camp O'Donnell where the march ended, before entering the Cabanatuan camps. Her cards and letters, which attempted to determine Chet's fate, were left unanswered. Some lost, some returned. Grace's older brother joined the army and was sent to Europe. Two of Chet's younger brothers joined as well, one as a Navy pilot, the other as a B-24 tail gunner. Grace joined the home front war effort, working at a local manufacturing company, making 20 millimeter brass shell casings for the war. Her mother and Chet's mother helped watch Chester Jr. Their son Dave explained. She prayed continuously for Chet's health and safety. Their love was reciprocal and connected despite the miles separating them. While he was away at West Point, Grace had patiently waited four years for her love toward Chet to be fulfilled. This time, her patience would be tested time and time again as she realized the stark reality of life interrupted by war. Waiting to learn of Chet's fate was excruciating. The Runis and Britt families wrapped their arms around Grace and Chester Jr., supporting them emotionally and spiritually. The combined families felt God was testing them and strongly believed he answered prayers and kept his promises. Faith gave them hope and comfort in the midst of their despair. Finally, in December 1942, Grace received word that her husband was a prisoner of war. The communication left much to be desired detail-wise, but at least she knew he was alive. By the time Grace received this information, Chet was at Davao Pino Colony in the Southern Philippine Islands. After four months at Cabanatuan, Chet was one of a thousand POWs selected for a work detail some 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers south of Cabanatuan. He would remain at Davao for the next 18 months. 
Davao Pino Colony was a farming work camp where the POWs raised food to feed the Japanese army in the Philippines. Conditions here, at least at the beginning, were somewhat better than they were at other camps Chet would endure. He had better food, including vegetables, than he'd had at the other camps, and even while fighting on Bataan. Plus, the Davao POWs also had more opportunities to scrounge for additional food. Chet's son, David, told me, Spent a year and a half working on an agricultural farm and going there, growing food for the Japanese. And I believe that going there probably helped him to survive because the food there was slightly better because they would steal vegetables that they were cultivating to eat them in the field. Further, Dave wrote, The POWs smuggled bananas and other vegetables into the camp at the end of each workday. Chet cleverly stashed his food treasures in his hat. Due to his height, six foot three inches, the guards refused to look up at him. When he was required to bow, he never bowed low enough for them to see the hidden food. The guards suffered from inadequate food as well. As the lowest ranking conscripts in the Imperial Army, they garnered little respect or consideration from their superiors in the military hierarchy. But despite conditions being somewhat better than Cabanatuan and other camps, Davao wasn't a pleasure camp. The POWs received harsh treatment and were punished severely for stealing food that they farmed. In June 1944, Lieutenant Britt and more than 1,200 other Davao POWs were blindfolded and loaded onto a Japanese transport ship, and eventually he found himself back at Kabanatuan. But after just a few months at that camp, in October 1944, Chet was transferred to Manila along with 1,500 Cabanatuan POWs. After several weeks at a Manila prison, he and 1,618 other POWs were loaded onto the Japanese hellship Oroko Maru in mid-December 1944 for transportation to Japan. He didn't know it then, but what he was about to experience would be the absolute worst thing he'd faced during the war, a literal hell on earth. The Oroko Maru was a former luxury liner converted to a transport ship. It was designed to carry 843 passengers, but when the ship sailed out of Manila Bay, there were nearly 3,500, including Japanese crew, soldiers, and civilians, as well as the 1,600-plus POWs. Those POWs were packed into three cargo holds at the ship's bottom, sitting crotch to buttocks with legs splayed out in front of them. The tropical temperatures outside were in the 90s, and inside the metal hull, the heat reached unbearable heights. The air soon became rancid and the floor sticky and wet with human waste. And then, when the POWs began yelling for water and food and other help, the cargo air hatch was closed because the noise bothered the women and children passengers above. Shortly after leaving Manila Bay, the ship, unmarked so it offered no clues that there were American POWs on board, was attacked and disabled by American planes. Still maneuverable, the ship sailed into the Subic Bay and to a Longapo Navy Yard, passing by Fort Went where Chet and Grace had lived before the war. At 9 a.m. the next morning, American planes returned and renewed the attack. Finally, Japanese officials allowed the POWs to climb out of the holds and escape over the ship's sides. Once on deck, Chet looked around to get his bearings. Stretching his arms and legs as he worked out the kinks from being confined in the hold, he quickly recognized he was in familiar surroundings and did his best to hide a smile. He noticed a pile of life vests, an unexpected stroke of luck. Chet snatched one and put it on before guards could object. He struggled trying to figure out how to fasten it when a Japanese guard rushed towards him, adjusted it properly, and connected the straps in a rare act of humanity by his captors. Lieutenant Britt was an adequate swimmer, but in his current weakened state, he wasn't sure he could make it to shore at a long depot. His life vest secured, he was confident as he leapt off the foundering ship and dropped 30 feet to the water. As the cool water washed over him, he felt invigorated, more alive than he'd felt since he first became a POW, some 918 days before. By the way, when American pilots saw the swimming POWs, they stopped their attack. 
Lieutenant Britt and the 1,305 surviving POWs remained at Alangapo for four days before being transported by truck and train some 153 miles or 247 kilometers north to a town called San Fernando on the island's northern shore. Here they were taken to a beach where they remained with little shelter under the relentless sun for a couple of days. They were given small rations of food and water. As Lieutenant Britt ate the evening meal of one teaspoon of raw rice and sipped his half cup of water, he watched the sun dip below the horizon. Watching the last slivers of light, he wondered how long he would spend on the beach and how long it would be until he held his loving grace in his arms. His last thought at night and his first thought upon awakening was of grace, always grace. He constantly prayed for blessings on his family as well as his own protection and survival. His determination to be reunited with his wife and meet for the first time his now three-year-old son and namesake consumed every waking moment. Later that night, he was one of 1,000 POWs loaded onto the cargo ship Enora Maru. The remaining POWs boarded the Brazil Maru, and the two ships set sail for Takao Formosa, which is in modern-day Taiwan. As they traveled north, the midwinter air and water grew cold. The majority of POWs, by this time in their captivity, were clothed only in loincloths or were completely naked. And where the scarce clothing perhaps helped them stay somewhat cool in the tropical climate, it offered little protection against the increasingly frigid air and water. Throughout his time on the hellships, and in the end it would be nearly a six-week ordeal, Chet kept a journal. In it, he recorded dates of his friend's deaths, what and how much he ate, and daily death counts. His son David believes he wrote it on scrap paper and kept it hidden in his loincloth, a place the guards never searched, and later transferred the information into a two-inch by four-inch onion skin journal. The two POW transport ships pulled in to Takao Harbor on New Year's Eve, 1944. The men from the Brazil Maru were transferred to the Enora Maru as they waited for more than nine days, still in the ship's holds, in the Takao Harbor. When he awoke on January 9th, Chet discovered the men lying on either side of him had died during the night. Too weak to move them in the increasing pile of those who had died, he stayed where he was. Their bodies provided some protection from the cold breeze flowing into the hatch. About 11 a.m., he heard the familiar sound of American planes overhead and braced for an attack. He could hear the whistle of bombs getting louder and closer. The ship shook violently as bomb after bomb exploded just above him. As he laid on the feces-filled straw with planes unleashing bursts of fire from their wing-mounted machine guns, Chet heard a soft voice in his head urging him to move. He was so weak he could barely lift his arms, but he crawled up and over one of the dead bodies next to him. Just as his body came to rest, Chet could hear bullets impacting the deck and streaking into the hold, whizzing not far from his head. When the attack ended, the sun was directly overhead. Its rays poured into the hold, filling it with bright light. Lieutenant Britt slowly raised his head, opened his eyes, and saw a line of bullet holes had pierced the floor where Chet had lain just moments earlier. The voice in his head saved his life. To Chet, it was either the voice of a guardian angel or perhaps the Holy Spirit. He had been struck by shrapnel, but he was alive and said another prayer of thanks. All around him, though, men had not been so fortunate. A bomb blew open the deck, killing hundreds of POWs instantly. Wounded and mangled survivors were trapped under wooden and steel beams. It was a sickening, hellish sight. Over the next couple of days, the surviving able-bodied POWs helped place the bodies in cargo nets which were lifted out of the hold. The dead were eventually buried in a mass grave near Takao. Among those dead was Lieutenant Willibald Bianchi, who I highlighted in episode 20. That episode includes details about what happened to the bodies removed from the Enora Maru. On January 12th, three days after the attack, the survivors were moved to the Brazil Maru. This ship was created for cargo and the holds were lined with small bays, about 10 feet by 15 feet. 20 men were crammed into each bay, 
and it was impossible to be comfortable. Chet could either sit with his legs extended or lie down with his knees drawn up to his chest. The ship left Takao the next day with the 900 survivors, wounded, sick, emaciated men who were clinging to life. The temperatures continued to drop with snow accumulating on the ship's deck above them. Some men literally froze to death and POWs died at an average rate of 27 per day. Chet was lucky enough to have a close circle of friends with him and they became a lifeline for survival as the most able-bodied among them could help take care of the sick and wounded. Their bodies were emaciated. By this time, Chet, a tall man, was down to only about 100 pounds with little fat or muscle on his body. The group huddled together to maintain body heat. He had a circle of friends, we called it Circle of Life. And basically what it was, was a group of men who had the same faith background, the same value structure. And because they did, they wouldn't steal from each other. And they helped each other. Because if you were sick, you couldn't go get food. Someone had to get it for you. My dad took care of him when he was sick. He brought him hot water bottles because the guy had very, very little leg hurt. My dad brought him food and also carried him to the to the latrine because he couldn't walk there. That's Chet's son David, who further wrote, Since becoming a prisoner in April 1942, Chet's survival had diminished from day to day and hour by hour to minute by minute and second by second. As he sat in the hold, naked and shivering, his measure of survival had been reduced even further. It was now breath by breath. Each time he found himself in a downward spiral, Chet thought of grace, which renewed his determination to survive. Instead of focusing on all the bad things that happened, he concentrated on the positive. First and foremost, he was alive, and he promised himself he'd do everything in his power to stay that way. He may not have been in the best of health, but he had his grace, he had his family, and he had his faith. They were the touchstones for survival. Finally, on January 30th, the Brazil Maru reached its destination, Moji, Japan. Chet and only 424 disembarked alive. And many of those survivors would not last long once they reached land. Fewer than 270 survivors remained alive three months later. That's a mere 14% survival rate. Chet was sent to Fukuoka Camp Number 3, which had eight inches of snow on the ground when he arrived. He was issued shoes, wool pants and shirts, woolen blankets, and hot coffee. The day after arrival at that camp, Chet, still dealing with shrapnel wounds from the attack at Takao, the effects of starvation, and sick with malaria, was admitted to the camp hospital in critical condition. Most of the Brazil Maru survivors at camp were admitted as well. The hospital offered them real beds, three meals a day, and medical care, all so they could heal and regain strength enough to work at the camps. Not many days later, Chet's last remaining friend died, and Chet's health took a bad turn. Delirious and unresponsive, doctors feared Chet had only hours to live. Despite the odds against his survival, doctors administered a megadose of sulfa drugs and an infusion of plasma in one last-ditch effort to save his life. They figured he'd be dead by morning. He wasn't. Chet downplayed his near-death casually, explaining in a letter to his parents the following August. I was given up one night in the hospital in Japan, February, but my heart kept going, and after receiving many injections and some plasma that was available, I gradually became stronger and was able to hang on. Chet was released from the camp hospital in late February. Two months later, he received word of yet another transfer, this time to Mukden, Manchuria, in the northeastern part of present-day China. But this time, he was transferred on board passenger ships and trains. Once in Manchuria, Chet was assigned to a camp called Houghton No. 1. After about a month in camp, Chet contracted wet beriberi, which is caused by a lack of vitamin B1. His legs, stomach, and feet swelled. His heart had to work harder to pump blood to the extremities. He could hardly take care of himself, but thankfully he had found another group of POWs who helped take care of and obtain food for him 
while his conditions fluctuated between bad and worse throughout the summer of 1945. Finally, after three years and four months in captivity, Chet and the other Hoken No. 1 POWs were liberated in late August. On August 23rd, he wrote a two-page letter to Grace. My dearest Grace, I hope you are well and happy today, and that by now you have heard that I am still alive. I guess you perhaps never did know where I was during the war. He then gave her a brief account of his time as a POW, including his time on the Hell Ships. Of the 1,619 men who began our trip on December 13, 44, we have left only about 250. All the others are dead. So you see how fortunate I am. I shudder to look back. I must go now, hun. I can write every day now, and most certainly will. All my love to you and to little Chesty. By September 6, he was back in Manila and in a U.S. military hospital there. His family received word within a few days. Chet was still in poor health and needed much medical care before he could return home. But he was able to write frequently to Grace. The following snippets show his eagerness to come home. I just had to write you. I feel like setting out for home on foot right now. The moon is beautiful tonight and the radio playing, let's take the long way home reminding me of those evenings long ago when I escorted you home from the library the long way. I can't understand the cause for the long delay. As I've told you, my name was submitted some time ago to headquarters to be evacuated. I hate to spend any more time away from you, dearest, even a minute. The big moon tonight makes me very lonesome. I want so much to be with you, hun. It's so very disheartening to be free to come home and no way to get there. Finally, on October 3, 1945, after two months at the Manila Hospital, Chet received word that he was coming home. He wrote to Grace, I am so excited, hun. I can scarcely believe that I'm actually coming back. Don't be surprised if I can't say anything when I first see you, because seeing you again after all that has happened will be the greatest thrill I shall ever have. Chet returned to the United States via a three-day flight from Manila to San Francisco with stops in Guam and Hawaii. Once in the States, he spent a couple weeks at Army hospitals undergoing various tests and care, including mental health treatment for depression, stress, and the emotional damage of his imprisonment ordeal. During this time, he was promoted to captain. Finally, on Saturday afternoon, October 20th, 1945, Chet stepped off a train in La Crosse, Wisconsin and into the arms of Grace and their son and the rest of his family. I've posted a picture on Facebook and Instagram of Chet holding his son, who was by then four years old, for the very first time. Hello, Daddy, were Chester Jr.'s shy first words to his father. Chet bent down on his knees and drew his son into his arms. Finally reunited, after nearly four and a half years apart, Chet and Grace remained in La Crosse through the summer of 1946 when he was declared fit for active duty. Around that same time, Grace gave birth to the couple's second child, a son named Donald. Chet was ordered to the White Sands Missile Proving Ground near Fort Bliss in Texas, while Grace stayed behind for a few months since she had just given birth. She moved with the children to Fort Bliss in late 1946. Chet worked with scientists to develop rockets and was promoted to major. The family would remain in El Paso for three years, where Grace and Chet could finally enjoy their life together as husband and wife while raising their two children. In spring 1949, their third son, David, was born. They were a happy family. But just a few months after David's birth, Chet began getting headaches. Ignoring them, he went about his work. On December 6, 1949, he collapsed at a Los Angeles train station while away on Army assignment. He ended up at the military hospital in San Francisco, and Grace quickly rushed to his side. Doctors determined that the 34-year-old had suffered a stroke. The doctors noted that he was a, quote, well-developed and well-nourished male who appeared older than his stated 34 years, close quote. 
Pictures of Chet before and after the war confirm this. He aged during his three and a half years as a POW. The diseases, forced labor, and starvation took a lasting toll on his body. The stroke left him with memory loss and paralyzation on his left side. He needed help dressing and walked with a cane, shuffling his feet along the floor because he couldn't lift them. Grace returned to the boys in Texas, attempting to give them as normal a Christmas as possible, as she contemplated raising three boys while being caretaker for her husband. She soon moved the boys back to Wisconsin, where both sides of the family could help with them, which allowed Grace to spend more time in California with Chet. During his eight months in the hospital, she made the three-day train journey many times. Their wartime nightmare was over, but another one was beginning. Seeing Chet struggle to walk, to speak, to merely button his shirt, unable to care for himself, plunged her into a valley of dark emotions. Grace's love for him was tested beyond human endurance while he was a POW, and she was being tested once again. She tried to stay positive and encouraging, especially when she was with him. She saved her tears and worry for when she was alone. An amazingly strong and resilient woman, she was given the perfect name as she was indeed a woman of unlimited grace. In August 1950, and against his own desires, Chet was officially medically retired from the U.S. Army. He returned to La Crosse, and the couple purchased a home a few blocks from his parents. For nearly three years, the Brits lived as normal a life as possible. Chet was at home full-time. Grace found work as a grocery store clerk. Even though his left arm was permanently paralyzed, Chet painstakingly created airplanes and ship models for his sons to play with. Their son David recalled, He had a stroke when I was six months old, so by the time I was old enough to remember anything, he was paralyzed on one side of his body. And so my interactions with him were sitting on his lap while he worked on balsa wood airplanes. But Chet's condition slowly deteriorated, with pain and headaches becoming more frequent and more intense. On June 12, 1953, his and Grace's 13th anniversary, Chet was admitted to the hospital with bleeding in his liver, kidneys, and spleen. Over the next few weeks, his organs failed one by one. Grace sat for hours at his bedside, and on July 6, 1953, he passed away peacefully. He was 38 years old. His official cause of death was an autoimmune disease with blood clots throughout his body. But in reality, he was yet another casualty of war. His body never fully recovered from the starvation, dehydration, and other atrocities he suffered as a POW. At 37, Grace was now a widow and single mother. Her situation was not unlike that of her own mother's. Both women were in their late 30s when widowed after being married less than 15 years and left to raise alone multiple children not yet in their teens. Grace received a small pension from the army and continued to work as a grocery store clerk. Her sister moved in with her and the extended Renice and Britt families helped as well. Still, as David recalls, she carried on after my dad died. It was hard. She was a single mother with three boys. And uh, she shared with me that there were times when she thought she was going to go crazy. Grace remained in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and, also like her mother, never remarried, focusing instead on raising her and Chet's three boys. In early May 2003, 87-year-old Grace suffered a heart attack. She passed away the next day with son Donald at her bedside. Their two other sons were still en route to see their mother one last time. She was laid to rest next to her beloved husband at the Oak Grove Cemetery in La Crosse. Son David wrote, After 50 years, Grace and Chet were reunited once again to rest in eternity beside each other. She lived as she had died with dignity and grace. Today, Chet and Grace's small family has expanded to include more than 30 descendants, even including a couple of great-grandchildren. Chet and Grace left them a legacy of faith and hope. 
the legacy he left is a legacy, spiritual legacy, because all of us are believers in Jesus Christ, and all of us are followers. And uh, my oldest brother, uh, his two sons are ordained ministers. My middle brother is a retired pastor. My children are, are believers and followers. And the legacy is in, in our faith and desire to follow that and live like followers of Christ as people who care for others. And that's what I knew about my dad. I knew that he was a man of faith who hung in there and he must have been a tough man to endure what he endured and survive, especially mentally. I asked Dave why he decided to write a book about his father's and mother's wartime experiences. He told me, My wife and I went to a memorial service in 2017, and I looked around the tent and everybody in there had white hair. I said, you know, in a very short period of years, no one will even remember the war. And I, I didn't want my father, I didn't want him and his comrades and my mother to be forgotten. We wrote the book to honor people who sacrificed so much that we could be free. My dad wrote about people he knew in his diary. And he would write in his diary, three guys died a day, four guys died a day. But if he knew somebody, he put their name there. Because my dad wrote that in the diary, we could not only tell him where he died, but the day he died. So we, we were able to bring closure to people who didn't know what happened to their loved one. So, in the end... Chet's relentless hope and will to survive affected more than just his family. Truly, he and Grace were remarkable heroes who, like so many thousands of others, sacrificed so much for their country's and their family's future. While Chet was surrendering to the Japanese forces on the Bataan Peninsula in early April 1942, his artillery friends on Corregidor Island were buckling in for the firefight of their lives. More on that next time. This is Left Behind. Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Chet and Grace's story on the Left Behind Facebook page and website, and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are in the show description. If you'd like to know more about their wartime experiences, you can buy David's book, Relentless Hope, A True Story of War and Survival, on Amazon. That link is in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll know when I drop a new episode, and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is researched, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon and Paul Sutherland. Special thanks to David Britt and John Dureski for their time, research, and help with this episode. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. And I'll be back next time with The Siege of Corregidor Island. (laughs) 